with every good work. Well, again, good morning. Welcome to Fullness. Whether you're here in the house or you're watching online, we're so glad you're here with us. Pray God has already blessed you through an awesome worship time. At least it was in the house. I pray it translated through... uh, through our live stream. If you would please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Titus. The book of Titus, near the end of the New Testament, go to Revelation, hang a left, keep going, you'll find Titus. It's not very big. But it, uh, it, I really would like for you to look at your Bible because I'm going to summarize in some ways the entire book today, kind of bringing all things together. We've been looking at the book of Titus over the past three weeks. Today's the fourth, last one before we start talking about the cross and the resurrection. It's hard to believe Palm Sunday's two weeks from today and Easter three weeks from today. It seems like it's coming on us uh, really quick. We've got some exciting things for Holy Week. It's going to be a great time of, uh, of worship uh, together. And so we'll start a, a series for that. But today I want to finish by summarizing some aspects of Titus. And again, just follow along uh, the letter with me. I I was uh, born and raised in a Southern Baptist heritage, as most of you know. Um, Southern Baptists, I've said this before, we have two verses we memorize right off the bat. John 3, 16 and Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Every good Baptist boy and girl uh, will know those uh, two verses right off the bat. Uh, talking about how God loved us so much he gave his son, and then that we are to go and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything Jesus says, I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. It's, It's really why God left the disciples behind, if you think about it. I mean, the job description of being a Christian is not as complicated as we try and make it. We are his ambassadors. We are his disciples who are to be in the disciple-making business. John Wesley once said, the church changes the world not by making converts, but by doing what? See, whenever I still hear the word disciple, I think convert. I mean, it's still so ingrained in me from that Baptist heritage. Go and make disciples. Go and get people saved. But Jesus is saying so much more than that, isn't he? He's not saying go and just get people saved. He's saying go and get them discipled, which encompasses getting them saved. But the gospel doesn't end at salvation. That is just the beginning. That's where things really start when we receive the good news of Jesus Christ into our lives and start to walk out this journey known as discipleship. I think Paul is saying to Titus in the book of Titus, we got the church going. We got it kicked off. Now you be in the process of disciple-making, because the gospel, the good news, results in good works. Now, again, I'll try not to preach sermon number one all over again today, though I thought it was really good, Um, that, that 
the gospel changes us. We are transformed by the gospel. We don't get saved by good works, but once the gospel hits us and works its way out from us, we are engaged in good works. That's part of being a disciple, a disciple maker, a, a person, a follower of Jesus Christ. So just to remind you of a couple of verses, kind of trying to tie things together for us from Titus. Titus is on the Isle of Crete. Um, he is a, a young protege of Paul. He was a Gentile who got saved, has been with Paul for a while. Paul has helped establish some churches on Crete, an island south of Greece. And now Titus has been left behind to establish the churches. So Paul is writing a letter to Titus to encourage him. Like First and Second Timothy and Titus, those are called the pastoral epistles. Um, because he's giving pastoral instruction to Timothy and Titus, but we're looking at Titus. So he's talking to him about Crete. And remember back in chapter 1 he says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And then Paul adds his own little commentary. Yeah, you know, this is true. His testimony is true. They are, they are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Well, it doesn't say much about the people you're ministering to, right? So, but just so that you know that Paul is an equal opportunity hard hitter, uh, over in chapter 3, he says this, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Paul is not just saying this about those in Crete. He's saying this is the way we all were. We were all like this. So if you're looking at this group of people and saying, oh, they're really horrible, well, you should start probably by looking in the mirror to saying, apart from the gospel, the good news, that's, why wouldn't you be that? Because that's the way we all are in our sin. But then he goes on, and in verses 4 through 6, I'm staying in chapter 3 just for a second. He says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. This is critical right here. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. We couldn't work our way there. He saved us by his grace and his mercy. And goes on and says... By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. All Cretans are liars, thieves, drunkards. But by the way, so are you. You are, that, you are living the passions of your own life. And you couldn't change yourself. You couldn't work your way to, to a transformed life. But God is grace and mercy. He's poured out his Holy Spirit who regenerates us and washes us, cleanses us, transforms us. Praise God, right? I mean, that should, I don't care how tired you are, that should raise a hallelujah somewhere in there. To say, thank you, Lord. You know, if I were to come, if I were to come to you and say, hey, I, I want to I pay you, I want to give you 
to mow my grass. I'll give you, Jonathan's all over it. I'll give you $10,000 to mow my grass. I mean, that's stupid, right? I mean, really, it's ridiculous for, you, for me to pay that amount of money for, for you to mow my grass. But the difference between me saying I'm going to give you $10,000 to mow my grass and me saying I'm just going to give you $10,000 is radical. Because no matter how you cut it, you still... Come on, hang with me. I know you're asleep, but we got to go here. No matter how it goes, I'm still paying you to do a job. Even if it's a ridiculous amount. Even if it's outrageous. I'm paying you for that. I mean, sports figures are, are making ridiculous amounts of money to throw a ball around. Right? That's what they're, they're, they're making. I just can't even imagine. My mind can't even get around some of the numbers they... They, they tell us that people are getting paid. To, it's crazy, but they're still getting paid to do a job. If I just give you the money, if I just gift it to you, it's a whole different realm. Things have changed. This is the gospel, people. God just, some, somewhere in the back of our mind, I'm just going to throw this out there. We still think the gospel requires me to do something to get it. It's a ridiculous payment for what I do, but I still got to do something to get the gospel, right? Something nags at us just a little bit to say, it, it can't be that good. It can't be that free. But it, if, if it's not free, it's not nothing. In other words, you, don't, you can't work your way in. You can't. No work you can do, Paul says in Romans and Ephesians and Titus, none of your works is going to get you there. It's a free gift of God. I keep saying this, but I'm hoping my heart will keep catching this. Maybe I'm just preaching to myself about the greatness of the gospel. It's totally free to you. He goes on and says, though, I'm in chapter 3. And by the way, I'm preaching chapter 2 today. So <laughs> this is all set up for chapter two. Chapter, but I want you to catch it because I don't think you'll get chapter two if you don't get what we're talking about. He said, this saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Wait a minute, Pastor Bart. Now you're, you're hooking us in. You know, by the way, I didn't write this. Paul did. But... He's saying you can't get in by good works. As a matter of fact, you can't even stay there by good works. It's all a gift of God. But now that you are there, the natural response should be that the gospel works its way out from within us so that we do good works. He says the same thing in Ephesians where he talks about you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God has made you alive This is a gift of grace, not by works anyone should boast, because we would. But then the next line is, you are God's workmanship created in advance to do good works. The gospel transforms us and changes. Where we were all evil, glutton, liar, sexually driven people, now... The gospel is working its way out through us so that we can be transformed and we're a disciple. We're not perfect. We won't be perfect. But we've been changed. 
down in verse 14, I'm still in chapter 3, he says this, And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. In other words, we're, we're, to, we're to learn to do good works, so that we don't live, as the NIV says, unproductive lives. Now, here's where we are. Let's say you buy this premise. You're in with me all the way. Are you? You with me? You're, you're here? Come on. Are we there? The question that arises, what good works? What do I do? What kind of good works? I mean, I start thinking about good works, and I, I just, the, the breaker switch in my brain flips. It's like, feed the poor, battle human trafficking, work in a hospital, clothe people who need clothing, go to jails, reading programs. What, what, what do I do? Where, where, where do I go? Where do I start? I can't think of what to do. So I'm going to do nothing. There's a study been done back in 1995. It's a great study on choice and being overwhelmed by choice. Uh, it's, it's famously called the jam tasting study. It was done in California. And here was the idea. I don't know if you can see this very well, but this professor and her class went into a, it was a predecessor to Whole Foods, or it was an upscale whole, you know, one of those them fancy grocery stores. Um, anyway, it was a nice grocery store. And they set up a display, and they, they did this study. So for two hours, they would present people with 24 different flavors of jam of a well-known higher-end jam from California. And what they found was 60% of the people who came by stopped and tasted something in the 24 jams. And then every two hours they'd switch back and they'd go to just six jars of jam that they would present. And they found that when they switched from the 24 to the six, only 40% of people would stop. Are you with me so far? So they do this every hour, just they're testing to see what happens. Well, as it goes on, even if it's 24 jars or six jars, everybody who stopped, they averaged two, two different flavors. So you had 26 or four, six, you just, you, you, you tried two. Here's where things go, and they gave everybody who tasted a $1 off coupon to buy the jam. Here's where things get interesting. Of the people that bought, that tested the 24 jars of jam, only 3% of those people bought versus 30% who went with the six. I, here was the conclusion. We are inundated with choices and we are frozen by the number of choices. We can't decide because there's too many choices. And when you narrow the choices down sometimes, it helps you to then make a decision. Have you been to the cereal aisle? At any Publix, Walmart? I mean, it's unbelievable. It goes on for as far as the eye can see. I love the way TV de defines cereal. He doesn't just call it cereal. He calls it sugar 
cereal. Just to let you know, this is not good for you. Is that what you called it the other night? You're talking about sugar cereal. We were laughing because my grandkids were in town. And uh, this is a side note, but it's a funny story. So just hang on. It has nothing to do with the sermon. But three or four weeks ago, my grandkids were in town. And Kathy is uh, battling with my three-and-a-half-year-old grandson about dinner. She had made, you know, broccoli or something, and he wasn't having any part of it. He was not eating this food. And Kathy was like, what do you want? And he said, oatmeal, which I thought was a pretty good choice, actually, (laughs) oatmeal. And so, but Kathy, nope, you got to eat this. And after we were done with that, I said to her, you know what? This is our grandchild. Give him whatever he wants. It's not my job to train this child. Right? I mean, we got it for like three days. He wants, he wants oatmeal? Give him oatmeal. I thought it was a pretty good choice. Let his parents worry about the battle over what to eat. Yeah, my wife's not really having that. But that's my philosophy. I think she may get, be getting more on board because we kept him again this week and we had some of the same issues. I turned around, he was eating oatmeal. So, (laughs) choices at times cause us issues because there's so many different choices that we have. Here's how Paul's going to set this up because I want you to see it's not as complicated at times, this whole good works thing, as we try and make it. Let's look at what Paul says. At the end of chapter 1, I'm going back, I've given you chapter 3 parts of At the end of chapter 1, he talks about false prophets. And he says this, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their what? Their works. In other words, they're saying they do believe in God, but by the way they do things, they're not doing good works. As a matter of fact, they're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. The false prophets. That's the very last verse of chapter 1. He starts off chapter 2 saying to Titus, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Here's the connection that Paul is making. He said their belief, false belief, makes them unfit for every good work. Now, I want you to teach sound doctrine, which in turn will make you and the people that follow you fit for every good work. Do you understand the connect here? He's saying the doctrine, gospel, results in outcome. It'll result in good works. Not because you're trying to do it, but because the gospel is in you. So sound doctrine is not a bad thing. Doctrine it can be really, really good. And then, so he's going to teach them all of chapter 2, which I'm coming to. And then at the beginning of chapter 3, he's going to say, remind them. So teach sound doctrine, blah, 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 blah. Here it's what it's going to look like. Then remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. So in between chapter 2, verse 1, and chapter 3, verse 1, he's telling them what these good works look like. You're like, wow, you took a long time to get here. But this is what I want you to see. What did good works, according to Paul, 
to Titus, to the church, what in Paul's mind is he talking about here when it comes to good works? And again, I think you're going to find it's not quite as complicated as we try and make it. Here are the points I'm going to give you. The first is this. The gospel works in the context of community. It works in community. He says, I'm going to just cover really chapter 2. Are you with me? Hello? Here's what we really want to look at is chapter 2. He says, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love, and in steadfastness. So he's going to do this teaching where he's going to address different people groups. Older, younger, bond servants, which we're going to call employees uh, later. And so he's addressing different people groups and saying, so look what he says to the older men. This is good works for older men. Sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Not that complicated, right? Now, by the way, as I go on, you can argue about some of these as far as culture and gender are concerned, but I think you're going to catch the context here of what Paul is saying. And I, I believe he is definitely writing to a specific church with a specific purpose in mind when he gives some of the instructions. He then goes on, likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. So this really cracks me up too. Here's the problem with older women. They need to be taught to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine. Probably the addicted to much wine may go with the slandering and the, the, the way they live as well. But here's what I want you to teach the older women. goes on. Then they can train the younger women, to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Different set of instructions that older women are to train younger women. So do you, here's what I want you to see about community as I go on and read this just a little bit. This disciple-making, these good works happen in the context of community, right? Older men, Titus, teach the older men. Well, to teach the older men, they got to be there. Then teach the older women. Now, older women work with younger women. And then similarly, which is a word I've always struggled with, meaning kind of like that, where the older uh, women are teaching the younger women. Now, similarly, older men... Could be Titus, but I think he's really addressing the older men. Encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Set them an example by doing what is good in your teaching. Show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. So that those who would oppose you, those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. All of this is happening in the context of community. Again, I'm not dissecting every single part of this, but doesn't it seem a little simplistic in some ways? Self-controlled? Well, yeah, no. I mean, really. Self-control, is that not a big deal? It is a big deal. It sounds simple. It's hard. It's challenging to be self-controlled. As a matter of fact, I could 
testify not only in my own life, but in the primary counseling I do with people who come in and having challenges, one or both parties are not self-controlled. There's habitual abuse of some kind, alcohol, drugs. Some people just, they can't shut up. Um, that's my counseling term for, some people just talk and say ugly things to one another. And, you know, they just can't control themselves. I could go on. Anyway, he, he lists out to the young men. And then he finally comes back and says, bond servants. And I know we have trouble with this slaves, bond servants idea, understandably so. But in the context of this, you can think of it as like employees. Um, bond servants were more voluntary slaves than the slavery we think of. But in, in any case, he says they're to be submissive to their own masters or bosses and everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, not showing, uh, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of our God and Savior. He, here's my first point. All of this discipling, all of this good works, it happens in the context of community. One of the things fullness has tried to do over the years, and we're successful at times, unsuccessful at others, is not, not to separate people groups by age or gender to the point that there's no overlap. You know, in other words, most, most churches in America today, you know, they have children, youth, college, young adults, Young marrieds, middle marrieds, middle marrieds with children, middle marrieds with teenagers, empty nesters, halfway to heaven, one foot in, whatever, um, older groups. So uh, we, have, we, we have these groups, but our desire is really, we know we need, we need this age aspect of sharing with one another right are you with me you understand that it's not if you're all 20 to 25 and single there's some life experiences nobody in that room is going to have that needs to be shared i mean if you've got a problem i'm i'm 23 year old female who's single i i don't know how to i I want to date, but I don't know how to meet people. Well, you got five other, six other people in the room with the exact same problem, right? I'm not trying to make fun of 23-year-old. Some of my favorite people are 20. No, that doesn't sound right. Um, <laughs> my daughter turned 23 last week, and I went and celebrated her, her birthday with her. Um, I'm trying to figure out how to back out of that one. Um, the point is this. We need, to, we need to be across various age groups. We need the experience of older with younger. We need, sometimes the older need the life of the younger. The encouragement, the enthusiasm to get us going. So we need each other. And we need it in different ways. One of the ways we're going to start doing this is uh, just one example. Uh, we're starting a marriage mentoring ministry. So we've recruited some older, more mature couples 
who are willing to meet with another young couple to just talk to them about life. You know, my experience is that one of the challenges of young couples is they don't have enough experience to know even some of the questions to ask. When I do premarital counseling and I talk to couples and I start talking about finances and I start talking about insurance, sometimes there's just this glaze that goes over their face. Insurance? Yeah, I got car insurance. No, 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 I'm talking about one of your best buddies is now going to work in insurance and he's going to try and sell you something. Trust me, it's going to happen because he's going to try and tell, sell you something and he's not, he, he loves you and he cares about you and you think he's got your best interest at heart, but he really doesn't. He's trying to sell you an insurance policy that's going to make him more money. You need to know all the, but you don't know what you don't know, right? And these marriage mentor and how to parent how to work through disagreements with your spouse. And, and these couples that we're going to mentor you, they're not experts in all these fields, but they've been through life. Older, teach younger. If you'd like to participate in that, just put it on the white card. Say, oh, I want in. If you're a single and you'd like to meet with someone of your own gender, a little older, who you would like to just have lunch with and talk about life with, just put it on a card. Say, I would love to have somebody meet with me. We want to, the gospel works in the context of community. If you separate it from community, as a matter of, if you separate the gospel from community, well, by the way, you just won't find that in the New Testament. There is nothing in the New Testament about lone ranger, lone wolf Christians. God is looking for a people after his name, not just a person, people. All right. Second point, we'll move a little quicker here. The gospel works to save. He says, so that in every way they may make the teaching about God. Our, this is verses 10 and 11. I'm just going on down. I've read verses 1 through 9. He talks about this living these lives of good works, which, again, I don't think are that complicated. Even if you go and take them apart, they're hard, but they're not complicated. And he goes, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. <laughs> Mine disappeared. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. He will, we make the gospel attractive by our good works. By the, by the way the gospel works its way out within us. And again, I could, uh, 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 I'll try not to preach this too long. But too often the church has made the gospel unattractive. I mean, really. We have put the gospel in the ugliest dress and ugliest hat and just made it look like, I don't want any part of that. By the way we do what? By the way we really, we treat one another. By the way we don't love one another. But the way we don't step into what Paul has already said about caring for one another, and being sober-minded and self-controlled and loving our families. We want to make it attractive. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is really the job description of us. 
the Christians, the disciples, the apostles. We are to, by the way, first receive power. Don't try and do this on your own. You will, you, it's not going to be real successful. But receive power, be witnesses everywhere. That's, our, that's who we are. And the gospel works to save people. There's so many fears about sharing the gospel for people. We, we're living in a day and age, and I'll get to some, something in just a minute, but where we do it less and less because we're afraid we don't know all the answers. We don't know what we're talking about. We're afraid that somebody may ask me about, what about the guy in Africa who never hears the gospel? Is he going to go to heaven or hell? I don't know the answer to that. So I can't share the gospel with anyone because I don't know the answer to every single question. No one knows the answer to every single question. But you know enough. I love the blind man. Kathy taught this to the kids last week. The blind man who was healed gets called before the religious leaders. You remember the story? And then they come before him and they say, yeah, who's this guy who healed you? Who's this Jesus? He said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't know the answer to all your questions. But I know this. I was blind and now I can see. You've got, everyone in this room has a story to tell. Just tell your story. Share. Make the gospel attractive by the way you live your life as it works away. So someone says, wow, they're going through a really tough time, but they are acting like life is getting better and better, like that song we sang. The relationship with God is strong. What is different about them than what do they experience? What do they know? Listen, I didn't make up the gospel. I, it's, the good news is so good. Back in the early 70s, so you're like, 70s, when was that? <laughs> From 1971 to 1974, I was in middle school. Yeah, I'm that old. And I had a job in middle school that at 5.30 every morning, I got up and I delivered the paper. I, I, my parent, my dad was a pastor. We didn't have much resources. I wanted to do some things. And so they said, if you get some money, you can do this. And I said, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to find a job. I'm an eighth grader, 13 years old, no experience. But I got a job delivering a paper. So for every day at 5.30 in the morning, when I lived in Bethesda, Maryland, I rode my bike two miles one way, which we would never let a child do, a 13-year-old, 14-year-old ride a bike two miles at 5.30 in the morning, right? Nowadays, in Washington, D.C., Bethesda, Maryland, I would ride to the apartment complex and I would deliver the Washington Post to the apartments. Now, for those of you who are not up on your history, American history, 1971 through 74 is known as, anybody? Thank you, Jack. The Watergate era. And the paper that exposed what was going on in the Nixon White House was the Washington Post. Every morning for three years, I moved from Bethesda, Maryland to Miami, Florida in January of 74. That's when I quit delivering the paper. Um, and Nixon resigned, I think it was in August of 74, if I remember right. But nonetheless, I delivered what is considered in American history probably the most it brought down a president. Now, here's what I want to say. 
I really can't take credit for it. I can't say I brought down the president. I didn't make the news. I didn't write the news. But I did deliver the news. And I think that's followers of Jesus Christ, what we're called to do. We think we have to make it or write it, but we don't. We just, it's that good. And if we live lives that are attractive, we just, we show people the gospel. And we are going to need, by the way, creative ways in the days ahead to do this. Pew Research, which is a famous research organization in conjunction with Elon University, just released a paper two weeks ago, I think it was February 18th, on the digital age and the pandemic. They interviewed experts across all various fields in all these different, from education to technology to religious studies, all, everywhere. And 83% of these experts agreed about one thing. Things will not be the same. No matter if the virus is gone, if it's totally gone, what you saw in life pre-pandemic will not be the life you see after. Digital stuff has changed everything. And people, remote learning, remote church, remote work. You know, one of my sons works for a major power company in Georgia. Georgia Power. And so... But they don't, he, hasn't been, he hasn't been in an office in over a year, and they don't know when he'll go back to the office. He doesn't even know if he'll ever go back to the office. Will there be an office? Why do we need an office? We're getting just as much done, saving on the overhead. People don't have to drive. They don't have to dress up. They're just as productive. Will we ever go back to that? 83%. If you get 83 to 85% of experts to agree about anything, that's called... Miracle, yeah. It's unbelievable. But they agree that technology has changed. Here's my, here's my, we need new, innovative ways to share the gospel in a society that's going to be less likely to come together. The gospel stays the same. The good news hasn't been transformed, but we got to figure out a way to share it a way to help our neighbors, a way to help our family and friends. Make, we need to make the gospel attractive. And I, I don't have the answers, but some of God is going to speak to some of you. The Spirit of God is going to move in you in how to help make the gospel attractive in the days ahead. The gospel will never change, but the delivery may. How we, how we share it may. And if indeed they're right, and we're not going back, and the digital age is transforming everything, for those my age, and even a little younger than me, there's going to be like a divide between before pandemic and after pandemic. And we need help. We need wisdom in what to do. All right, here's the final point. The gospel works to train. The gospel works to train, to change us, Right? Here's what he says. I'm just, and by the way, please, I hope you are looking in your Bibles because I'm just going right down the chapter, verse by verse. And he says here, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, doing what? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. 
waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to reclaim us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous. Now it's not just we, we are zealous for good works. That's what God is looking for. The gospel works to train us. Let me go back to the beginning of verse 11. He says, for the grace of God, <coughs> excuse me, has appeared bringing salvation for all people. We can receive the gospel, training us. Okay, what's it training us to do, right? If we're going to get trained, how are we going to get trained? Well, it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. The gospel teaches us what to say no to. I mean, you should write this down. This is, these next three points are really good. You're like, three points? I thought we were done. Uh, we're almost done. But I'm just taking across this passage. It teaches us what to say no to. Do you know, a, a lot of my life has been spent saying yes to too many things. Really, what maturity helps us do is learn what to say no to. Because there are so many things we could do. But in this case, Paul is saying the gospel teaches us, trains us to say no to ungodliness. Here's part of the point. You can say no to ungodliness. I mean, I've heard it before. I've heard people say to me, I just can't say no. I just, I can't. This, I'm addicted to that. I, I, I'm addicted to pornography. I just can't say no. Oh, yes, you can. You can't say no. And here's what's going to help you. You've got to train yourself in the gospel to learn to say no. How to say no. You need to train yourself in the context of community to learn to say no to whatever it is. You can say no. You may not say no like in the, the first five minutes. But neither could I run a marathon after five minutes. You know what I mean? You train yourself for that. The gospel works to train us what to say no to, to renounce ungodly. It also trains us what to say yes to. I'm going to say yes to living a self-controlled, upright, and godly life. I'm going to say no to this, and I'm going to say yes to this, and the gospel trains me in how to do this. There's a lot we do need to say yes to, but those yeses need to be to a godly life. And then he says, godly lives when? In the present age. We need to act now. Some of us say, you know what? Yes, when I, when Jesus comes back, because that's what the next verse says, he's going to come back and, you know, all this great stuff is going to happen. That's when I'll live a godly life. Hey, you don't have to wait till then. Paul is saying you can act. The gospel is so good, it will teach you to say yes to things, to say no to things, and to act now as God has given you. You know, I read a saying the other day where someone said this, the Christian is not ruined by living in the world, but by the world living in him. 
We're not ruined by going out. We're ruined by it coming in. Likewise, we are transformed by the gospel working its way out from within us. Paul says, I do everything to spread the good news and share its blessings. Don't you realize that in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize? So run to win. Don't run to lose. Because all athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away. But we do it for an eternal prize. People, the idea about training is this. There's a race we're going to be in, are in, and we're getting ready for the race. Training prepares me for the race. So the gospel works to train me so that I can run the race of life in a way that I win. So I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. I discipline, again, we hate these words. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I might myself be disqualified. I want to train. I want to discipline my life in such a way that I run the race well, run to win. Now, running to win is running to finish in this case, finishing well. When I did used to do marathons and longer races, my kids, <clears throat> for those of you who know the Brookings family, I'm so sorry, um, but the, the Brookings kids, they have an addiction to winning. Uh, it comes from their mom. And so it's her side of the family. They have an addiction to, to, to winning. So I would go out to run a marathon, and one of my kids, Dad, are you going to win? You're going to win? No. I'm not going to win. So I tried to teach them that just finishing was winning. They were going, yeah, right. Yeah, they weren't buying that. But in this case, that's what we're aiming for. We're aiming to finish the race well, not to get disqualified. And here's my questions to us. Have we lost the ability to say no in life? Have we lost the concern about living a godly yes? And are we willing to act now in all of these areas? Paul is teaching Titus that in the context of community, the sal that, that the gospel saves people and it changes them. And it gives us the ability to say no, to yes, and to act. He says, And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not to be unfruitful. Over 100 years ago, there was a famous revival called the Welsh Revival. It was in Wales. A very famous uh, spiritual awakening and it was in the days before social media and you know newspapers and news it took a little while so some people some uh, reporters from London went down to um, Wales and they're in one of the cities and they walk up to a policeman and they say to him can you point us to the Welsh revival and the policeman who had been transformed by this renewal movement said to them, the Welsh revival is inside this uniform. Transformed by the gospel. That's us. Changed by living this incredible transformative life. 
This Wednesday is St. Patrick's Day. It's also a day that it's going to stick with me, St. Patrick's Day will forever, because a year ago on St. Patrick's Day, I got the COVIDs. And um, yeah, the COVIDs. I'm talking like my parents now. They always put a the and an S at the end of everything. The Walmarts, the COVIDs. Um, anyway, I got COVID. I, I remember that morning so clearly running with Dave uh, Malik, and we were just kind of, everything was breaking. You know, all the news was breaking a year ago. And talking to Dave, I said, oh, who, who do you think will be the first one to get it? <laughs> you know, you think we'll do okay if we get it? I, I didn't even know, and neither did Dave, that I already had it. I just hadn't manifested it yet. It hadn't kind of, I didn't have a high fever. I felt great. I mean, I ran five miles. I killed it. And um, <laughs> thanks. And so I, I felt great. Went to staff meeting, met with the, the Donegan, did a premarital counseling uh, time, uh, made some videos. And then all of a sudden, I felt like my face was on fire. Um, really, I felt really flushed. And by that evening, I, I, know, I knew I had it. I was like one of the first in the state of Alabama. I don't know what number, like in the top 40. I was a winner. Um, I was in the top 40 out of half a million people who have now gotten it. Um, you know, my thanks go out to Amelia and Christ Health and their care for me. Uh, really, they, they, Amelia was constantly on the phone with me and Kathy, who then got it the next day because I wanted to cheer with her. And Caleb then got it too, shared with him. He thought he'd come home. And the point is this. It's, some things are easier to share than others, right? Some things, and I think evil is like that in our lives. If we're not careful, it spreads without us even wanting to. But the gospel transforms us in a way that changes us and allows us to live fruitful productive lives. And when I talk about every good work, don't get so complicated that you think, oh, if I'm not doing this, you know, Mother Teresa level work, that doesn't count. No, your every good work is you're living your life every single moment of every single day to the glory of God, saying no to ungodliness, yes to living to a godly life and acting it out now. One of the most famous prayers of St. Patrick's, since we're talking about St. Patrick's Day, is this, Christ be with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ within me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ at my right hand, Christ at my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of every man who speaks to me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. May this be our prayer as well. Lord, we thank you. We glory in you and we pray that we will be fit for every good work. Not because we're so good, but because the gospel is that great as it works its way out from within us. Lord, transform us by the power of of the presence of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. In Jesus' name, amen. Gabriel.